0: Welcome to The Rate Debate, a lively discussion from the champions of Australian fixed income, featuring Darren Langer and Chris Rands from Nico Asset Management. Welcome to episode seven of The Rate Debate, and thanks for joining us. I'm Darren Langer, Head of Australian Fixed Income at Nico Asset Management, and joining me in the virtual fixed income bunker this month is co portfolio manager Chris Rands. Hi, everyone. So, Chris, is the RBA too concerned with front-end rates? That whole policy seems to be more about helping out the banking sector, when in reality, the, the government is having to issue more and more debt at higher and higher interest rates, and it's the taxpayer that's picking up the cost of that. You know, does the RBA seem to have, have the wrong uh, the wrong policy goals here?
1: I kind of have... I guess, two ideas that sit in my head with this one. And one of those ideas might end up in a little bit of a rant. So I'll, I'll save that for second. The first idea though, is just what the RBA thinks they're doing and, and how they're trying to achieve that goal. So the reason that they haven't bought any long bonds at the moment was, was told to us Uh, Late last week, uh, by Guy Debelle, and he said in his speech that the RBA chose not to buy bonds beyond the ten-year maturity, uh, as those bonds play a less important role as a pricing benchmark in the economy, and very few other financial instruments price off them. So, in essence, when you think about what the RBA is doing, they're trying to pull cash lower, they're trying to pull the three and five-year bond lower, because we have a floating rate mortgage market. You know, typically borrowers in the Australian market will be out to say five years and they're trying to get those rates as low as possible. In a normal environment, that probably makes sense, but I don't know how much sense that makes at the moment. And and the reason for that is the biggest borrower that's going to be coming to the market over the next couple of years is the Australian government. They've got you know hundreds of billions of dollars to finance. They're the ones that are keeping the economy alive through JobKeeper and job seeker, And they're the ones who typically borrow longer than 10 years. So when the RBA tells us they don't want to buy 10 years because nothing prices out there, they're really letting the Australian government kind of be on their own when they try and raise new issuance out in that 2051 area. And to me, that's causing those interest rates to push higher. And that means it will be the taxpayer at the end of the day who ends up footing that bill, even though we're asking more and more of the government over the next few months of extending these policies and giving us more. So to me, I think in the normal environment, what they're saying probably makes sense. At the moment, I'm not so certain it makes that much sense just because of the size of the volume that needs to come. Does does that kind of feel... Similar to what you're thinking?
0: Yeah, I, I think we're in a situation now where the most of the economy is on life support. Um, and that life support is is government life support. When economies are working normally, you know, the banks are big lenders to the market, and you know, supporting them probably would make sense. But at the moment, it's the government who's the main borrower. Um, banks don't have any real need to to borrow in the market, credit demand is not terribly high. The, the main thing is funding the government deficit, and you know the reality is with the interest rates where they are, the higher yields are, the more that's going to cost in the long run. Um, and and it doesn't look like, given the sort of metrics that I was talking about before, um, you know, four to five billion dollars worth of bond issuance plus another couple of billion dollars in, in short term T notes, you know, every basis point is going to make a big difference. So yeah, it, it's really hard to understand not only their view in the context of what we just talked about, but also in a global context where most central banks have been willing to buy bonds out along the curve. And if anything, have tried to suppress yields um, longer rather than let them run free.
1: Yeah. And I think think a lot of that kind of plays into kind of, I guess, the frustration that that we are seeing at the moment that everyone else is doing it, but we're kind of sitting back and saying, well, we could do more if we wanted to. And meanwhile, those long bonds drift higher and higher and cause you know, the, the federal government to end up with a bigger tax bill at the end of the day. The second kind of, I guess, grievance that I had with this and the one that hopefully doesn't end up in too much of a rant is just what they're doing with their front-end policy. So to me, the RBA has gone to lengths to tell us that they are not funding the government, they're, they're buying bonds in the secondary market, they're not participating in new issuance, there's a tender process, they're making sure that everything that they do is kind of seen as at arm's length to the government. You know, that's pretty, that's pretty good. We don't want the, the RBA, you know, printing money and sending it straight over to the, the federal government. But at the same time, to me, the RBA is quite kind of happy to say, we are funding the banks, And so that policy is that the RBA is giving the banks uh, over $100 billion if they want it to the banks at 0.25% for three years. So when we put that number into perspective, currently the Australian government three-year bond yields are at 0.3%. So this money is cheaper than the government can borrow. And it's also up to $100 billion when at the moment the RBA has only bought about $50 billion of government bonds. So in essence, what we're seeing is just huge amounts of free liquidity being thrown at the banking sector and a reluctance to kind of spend on the government. And the, the real reason that I guess that that kind of frustrates me is one, as we said, that the, the long end of the government curve is getting more expensive, but two, uh, not even 12 months ago, we were having a a banking royal commission. And at that time, you know, we were looking at poor lending standards. We were looking at claims that the banks had been charging customers who had passed away. And what came from that was a bit of a slap on the wrist. And here we are 12 months later, lining them up with $100 billion at 0.25% rate, as if kind of nothing ever happened and we need to be passing on huge amounts of liquidity to them. So it is a little bit frustrating from my perspective to see the government kind of left on its own out in that long end and then them focusing and being happy to focus on just the banks in in the front end.
0: It definitely makes you question, you know, what the RBA's purpose is. You know, if rates are on hold for the foreseeable future, they're unwilling to act to add any further stimulus into the economy, but they're still not meeting any of their targets. They're a long way away from price stability. Um, If anything, we have, you know, prices falling. They're miles away from, Their full employment targets and things like that. It's arguable that many of the past um, policies um, by not just the RBA but central banks in general have actually made this situation worse, not better. You know, is it time to just throw out the rule book and start again and say, none of these policies work? Um, They haven't worked for a long time. Do we need to do something better rather than sitting back and just saying, If we just wait long enough, if we keep interest rates at zero for the immediate future, eventually everything will go back to normal and we'll just come back to the right sort of policy targets that we've always been chasing. And in reality, if you look at the time since GFC, they haven't really hit any of those targets in that 10, 15 year period. So it just seems to be something seriously wrong here.
1: Yeah. Something that we kind of brought up kind of 12 to 24 months ago was just kind of questioning, as you said, what it is they're trying to achieve. Now, to me, that is not to say they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. They shouldn't be, you know, buying bonds. They shouldn't be doing, you know, cutting rates to zero or that. What it is to say is that we haven't achieved the targets that we have been set. Something has changed and that we should be questioning what the role is and how we should be getting there rather than just kind of buying more and more assets, forcing more and more liquidity into the system and and hoping that everything rights itself. This to me, though, is a a far bigger question that needs people to kind of sit back and start thinking about it and start questioning what it is we need to do. and And unfortunately, it seems that nobody really wants to do that yet. And we'll just kind of keep pushing the same policies that, you know, the European Union has been trying these policies for almost 10 years now. Japan has been trying these policies for 15 years, and and they certainly don't seem to be working over there either. So whether or not we should just be following them blindly down that path, I think is a pretty good question.
0: What central banks to me now seem to have become, um, not again so much in the case of the RBA, but, but more globally is that they're just really a buyer of last resort there's no no penalty for risk-taking anymore. Um, and this has come about again from from central banking policies for years in that anytime losses look likely, they step in and they take away those losses. And we're seeing it more and more that, you know, is this a, an unintended consequence now that people just don't fear risk? Um, you know, we, we see more and more as not how can I achieve you know, a balanced risk portfolio, but it's how can I achieve a yield? Or how do I get to a certain target? And, you know, we just keep taking more and more risk to get to those targets without looking at the consequences of it, that it's making things more and more unstable. And really, all central banks have done for the past couple of years is drive um, asset prices higher. And that. Does not have a huge impact on their actual goals, which is full employment and price stability. I don't know about you, Chris, but have you ever seen any linkages to higher asset prices leading to those outcomes?
1: I, I don't think you will really find that that linkage sitting in in much of the you know literature that that talks about these types of things. But when I kind of think about this from the longer term perspective, now that we are in this situation, though I think they are somewhat reluctant to let things move back the other way, in that if we were to let things default, if we let the the equity markets fall, that it's going to hurt confidence too much and, and put us in double the hole that we're currently in at the moment. So, you know, if they were going to try and and do, I guess, a policy that was to to take away some of that liquidity, I don't think they would be thinking about it now. They're probably going to have to try and do that, you know, once we get out of this mess, but, but they've also shown that once we get out of this mess, they're also not willing to do it because, you know, the past 10 years, as you say, has been them just adding more and more on top rather than thinking about the exit. So to me, I, I kind of think it would be nice what you're describing, but it's kind of. We're, we're 10 years into this kind of experiment now and it doesn't seem like
0: there's just an easy way to exit. We just get more and more debt and uh, less and less uh, ways of getting out of it, it seems, um, without very little to show for it. So Chris, I, I know you've been doing uh, some work on the JobKeeper arrangements and um, you know we, we see some signs in the next couple of months if that stimulus if it is withdrawn that there could be uh, some further problems down the track. What exactly have you been looking at and how do you think it's going to impact the economy over the next couple of months?
1: I've been kind of really looking at the the amount of support that the government has given and just trying to put that in context of how that currently looks against what it could look like if it changes. So, you know, reading out numbers is probably going to make for some, some great radio. But if we think of the policy that is in place at the moment, JobKeeper is giving uh, those people that who are being supported by the government at the moment, about $1,300 a fortnight uh, after tax. Now, if you look at the average mortgage size in Australia, uh, that's about $400,000, and that's going to have a payment of about $800 a fortnight. And when I went and tried to find the minimum that a person could spend to live... Uh, For a single person, that's about $550 a fortnight. So when you add those numbers up, you get $800 in mortgage payments and $550 to live. That's about $1,350 a fortnight and is not wildly different to the $1,300 that you're getting on JobKeeper. So if you look at the government's policy at the moment, it to me has been fantastic in kind of making sure that those people who are in need are getting enough cash to get by. It's probably not easy. It's probably cutting back spending and making sure that you're reducing your expenditures, but at the same time, it is helping. Now, if we compare that to New Start, which is the original unemployment benefits, that's about $550 a fortnight. So when you think of those numbers that I just said, about thirteen fifty just to live per fortnight, under normal unemployment benefits, you're going to be about eight hundred dollars per fortnight in the, in a hole. So, if the government is to cut these policies in September, which is when they eventually were said that they were going to run till, then those people that are relying on this extra income are going to go from kind of. Struggling to make ends meet to being really in a hole in my opinion, so so I think what when you're looking at this, you need to say if the government ends these policies come September, the people that are relying on this are going to take a real hit economically because their income's going to fall by over fifty percent, and that just looks a little bit too big for the economic conditions that we're in at the moment,
0: yeah, certainly, we've seen improvements in um, retail sales, certainly off their lows anyway, and I guess that that reflects what you're sort of saying is that it, it's quite enough just to get by so people are spending money on essentials but we haven't seen any real recovery in the services um sectors um they're still either um, flatlining or or slightly declining and and i guess that's because people just don't have that extra income admittedly some of those services may still well be closed but but even as we've started to open up the economy a little bit in the last few weeks we haven't seen any real noticeable change in in levels of service purchasing Um, and you know it's very hard to see both sectors working at the same time while we have a large number of people on benefits and as you say if those benefits are are declining in the next couple of months, it's just going to get worse again. So it, it seems very difficult to sort of understand why markets um, are getting so excited about this recovery when it, realistically it's only bits and pieces of the economy that are recovering.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, when I look at the kind of idea of a, of the recovery is that you you had a very sharp fall and you're going to get a very sharp rebound after the fact. But the real question is, do we kind of go back to where we were or do we stop kind of, you know, 5 to 10% off that? Because a, a typical a typical recession is going to, to wipe out about 5% of output. So this one that knocked you back 20, it can easily rise 15 and still kind of take you back to what a normal recession would be. And then you need to figure out how you're going to grow after that. From the idea of kind of the market being a little bit more positive, when I was running through these numbers, the government kind of is keeping this information very secret at the moment, but I, I think when you, when you do calculate the numbers, you kind of end up thinking they're going to have to extend something. So, you know, whether JobKeeper disappears and it's JobSeeker stays, it, it, it doesn't feel like we're going to have this income shock where people go from 1300 down to 550. It kind of feels like to me that it's probably going to land somewhere in between those two, and it'll be the market kind of expecting something from the government to come over the next few months.
0: So so given that outlook, Chris, you know, um, obviously one thing that's on the back of people's minds is obviously the the roof over their head. One of the things that we talk a lot about is the impact of um, unemployment on housing. You know, Australian housing market's done pretty well over the last 30 years without too many corrections. We haven't really seen large price declines in, in the past few months. But, you know, it doesn't seem like it's a great story for housing going forward if that cliff does happen.
1: Yeah. So on the unemployment, obviously over the past few months, we've seen close to a million people unemployed. Um, another, you know, 2 million or so are on JobKeeper. So if these policies do end, it's it's going to be a huge hit to income. And generally that's probably going to drag with it hurt in housing. At the moment, we should also mention that a lot of people are on home loan deferrals at the moment. So they they're kind of, they've had their repayments reduced or not making repayments up until September. And so what you're seeing is that support has been helping the housing market. I've been kind of quite surprised in that it's only fallen 1% over the the past few months, uh, even as the economy has been in the hole that it is in. When I look at the indicators that I use over the short term, um, there's three indicators that I like. So that is mortgage finance, building approvals, and the auction clearance rates. All three of those are kind of saying you should be expecting declines over the next few months potentially in the kind of five to 10% range. But once we get beyond that, I can't really find the smoking gun to say, here is the positive for the housing market that is coming. So whether it's unemployment being high, immigration has fallen, rates can't go any lower, there isn't really something that I look at and say, this is really going to help the housing market. And so to me, I think we should be expecting five to 10 with the expectation that it could kind of get worse in six to 12 months time and that we
0: need to be watching this very closely. Given all of that doom and gloom, Chris, I think we've got one one last piece of uh, happy news to share with our, with our listeners. And that's really around um, what we're seeing central banks doing in credit markets We've got some uh, reports starting to come out of the rating agencies, um, particularly Standard & Poor's, that are showing corporate debt defaults are rising, um, something we really haven't had to deal with um, in a major way since GFC. And the numbers that I saw are showing that they haven't been as high as what they are um, since the GFC, although still not back to that point yet, Um, but we're still not quite through the whole year yet. But what we've actually seen is, you know, central banks are buying corporate debt, that's stabilised prices, and, and if anything, it's brought credit spreads into to levels either at or, or close to where they were um, prior to the whole COVID-19 crisis. Do you feel that the central bank buying is actually giving investors this false sense of security? Because there's nothing if a credit defaults that the the central bank can do about that. Yes, prices might be stable, spreads might be okay, but if there are real defaults, um, investors are going to wear that yeah, alongside the Fed. If that happens, what what do you think on that? It does seem a little bit that
1: you know we're we're kind of well not we but the the market is jumping into credit at a. At a pace that kind of I really didn't expect to see kind of coming into this a few months ago one of the favorite metrics that I like to use which goes to what you're saying is the upgrade to downgrade ratio so in a normal environment that'll sit about one so you'll see about as many upgrades as you see downgrades I just went and checked this on Bloomberg and in the US uh, there's been about 1600 downgrades this year compared to 160 upgrades so as you say this is as bad a rating environment as the GFC, and in this environment, we're actually seeing debt spike as well. So you're getting more and more lower rated debt, you're getting higher debt levels. And at the same time, you're seeing debt spreads come in to relatively tight levels. So it does look like that the the central bank's buying has caused people to take a bit of risk that they probably Or definitely wouldn't have if they hadn't have stepped in. But when I think about what's going on, it reminds me of kind of a line that you said to me about five years ago, that that everyone is capitalist on the way up and they're socialist on the way down. So at the moment, I think what investors are expecting is that if credit spreads come in, they'll make a, a tidy profit on that side. And if things get worse and something defaults and they're the one left holding the bag, that it will be the central bank or the government that bails them out and kind of socializes those losses. Now, I know you've been... Been pretty vocal about this idea on people taking risk,
0: but is is that how you're seeing this at the moment? Definitely. One of the things that's um different to the GFC is at least in the GFC, spreads widened a significant amount. So if you were willing to take on the risk, you got compensated for it. At the moment, to me, you're taking that same level of default risk and not getting any compensation at all, really. One of the things that's really hard to know is that um You know, what sectors are really in trouble uh, until we start to see some of the government um, uh, support peel away? And this is just not an Australian problem. This is a global problem. But until we see some of that support peel away, it's going to be very hard to know who's going to survive, what business models are still valid and things like that. And yet people uh, have mistaken price and spread stability for um, free of default risk, you know, i.e. this is now risk-free. And I, I think that's a, a big mistake. I mean, it's quite possible that the support central banks have, have provided will protect certainly a lot of the bigger companies, but but there's still a large amount of debt out there that I think is considerably risky. And I think we've created a culture where people tend to invest thinking about liquidity more so than um, risk and that there's not necessarily one and the same thing. You can have, you know, low liquidity without having a lot of risk and you can have reasonable amounts of liquidity uh, and still have high risk, which is what I think we have. You know, central banks have created a a good liquidity structure, but they can't take away that underlying um, risk of companies defaulting. And I think that's that's been very badly mispriced to some extent in the market at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, just as kind of my experience, I I kind of joined markets after the GFC. So obviously for people my age who have been in the market for, you know, close to ten years, we we haven't seen that. We we don't know how much it hurts and, and what it looks like. But I guess from my experience, what I see is that It's kind of similar, I guess, to Pavlov's dog, who's, you know, drooling at the sound of a bell in that when the central bank rings the bell and tells you that they're buying credit, uh, everybody starts drooling at the returns that they're going to see and and get ready to buy. So at some stage, it does feel like that's going to go wrong. But I guess from my experience over the past 10 years, when you look at it, they've been able to protect it every time. So the market is probably thinking, I don't see why they can't protect it now. Now, that might not be correct, as you say, but with 10 years of kind of following that roadmap it's it's probably the key reason why people are willing to jump into it at the moment
0: don't disagree on that side of things i i just think again it's it's a mistaking uh, price stability and price risk with default risk and and to me they're not the same thing And and i don't believe markets are compensating investors at the moment for that that a level of default risk particularly in certain sectors So one of the things we've just seen uh, come out on on the news uh, at the moment is that uh, Melbourne uh, looks like it's going to be locked down for another six weeks. Certainly the RBA statement um, would have been written before that news came out and they sort of alluded to things perhaps getting a little bit better um, and being less worse than they'd anticipated. What do you think um, this drawback in, in, in Victoria is going to uh, to create? And do you think it has a bigger implication for the wider country?
1: At the moment, we've kind of seen that it's going to be about six weeks that Melbourne will be in lockdown. So obviously, that's going to hurt the state of Victoria's, you know, economic prospects. We We've been talking about the recovery and how quick that comes, you know, obviously, it delays that. I think, though, for the wider economy, it also means that You know, people in New South Wales, in ACT, where you're kind of starting to see a few cases pop up might kind of become a little bit more cautious over the next few weeks and, you know, potentially distance themselves a little bit more than they would have. And again, you know, none of this is going to change the trajectory of the economy hugely compared to where it is at the moment. But it it certainly will, in my opinion, slow down uh, any recovery, especially if you kind of start second guessing what you're doing and and when i look at that from the rba's perspective who keep telling us that, you know, it's not quite as bad as we thought and things seem to be getting better, they're potentially probably going to have to look at that message and say, what is it that we can do? Because as we said earlier, they keep telling us that they have more to do, but they don't really show us what it is, that they're probably going to have to figure out what it is that more is and get ready to deploy it if things get worse.
0: Yeah, I think uh, for the next couple of weeks, it's really going to be, if it's just Melbourne centric, um, it probably is, Um, manageable but if we start to see other places crop up like we have in the US where it's gone from one state to the next state to the next state I think that that's a a very different um, kettle of fish Um, so we'll have to see what happens over the next couple of weeks. That's it for this month Uh, if you have any feedback or questions we'd love to hear from you you can email us at the rate debate at nicoam.com and if you haven't read our latest insights, you can find them on our website at nicoam.com.au. Tune in next month when we deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's August rate decision and provide an update on what's been happening in markets. Until then, stay safe. This podcast was prepared by Nico AM Limited, ABN 76252, AFSL number 237563. It is of a general nature only and does not constitute personal advice or an offer of any financial product. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any individual. Any references to particular securities or sectors are for illustrative purposes only and this is not a recommendation. Any economic or market forecasts are not guaranteed.